Whew. Oh my goodness, man. You guys do not know how excited I am about this. Welcome to the first episode of Sideline Saturdays. Yes. I'm your host, Jelani Smith. And to give you a little bit of background on myself, well, before I do that, let me start with what Sideline Saturdays is for me. So this is a podcast I created to talk a lot about social injustice, music, sports, trending topics on the internet, school life, all the different things that I see and I know a lot about. But I'm also going to be having a lot of conversations with classmates, friends, family, acquaintances, just to pick people's brains a little bit and get a different perspective on things and have different insight. So there's also going to be a lot of roundtables. That's what I'm thinking about right now. So five or six people, discussions about sports. It could be about social injustice. It could be like a story about when we were all younger and we did something stupid and dumb as fuck. All of that is going to be on this show. So I'm trying to appeal really to everybody and just have something fun and lighthearted. But yeah, a little bit of background on myself. I'm 19 years old. I go to South Suburban College, about 15 minutes away from where I live, Lansing, Illinois. I'm born and raised, lived here for about 16 years of my life. And I'm a communications major. So when I was in high school, the first thing that I wanted to do starting my freshman year was business. My dad's really big in the business, really good at saving money, really good at managing money. So I figured I'm gonna just get into business, do what I do, you know what I'm saying? It's in my genetics, it's my heritage, I'm gonna be a money maker one day. But as I went through high school, I started realizing like, this really isn't for me, man. Like, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at managing money, I spend all my money as soon as I get it, and that's like a little $20, I'll go spend that real quick on some food. So I was trying to figure out my senior year what I really wanted to do with my life. What did I want to do in terms of communication? I was a basketball player and a baseball player, so I was doing that as well, but I, I knew already that I needed to do something else besides just basketball and baseball. I needed the backup planner. I needed a passion along with basketball and baseball. In came communication. I did a little, I was fucking around a little bit in high school, like my senior year. I was taking a little bogus little classes, you know, Spanish two, speech. And in my speech class, it just, everything started flowing naturally to me. Whenever we had presentations, whether it be informative, persuasive, or entertaining, it all just came easy. A lot of times I was doing them speeches like, I'm talking about like, y'all like, I would do them the night before. Like she gave us like a good two weeks or a week before we would do them, before they were due. I would do them the night before, practice it for like an hour before I went to school. And speech was like my second class period. So it wasn't like I had that much time to be practicing. Well, as much time as I should have had. And I would knock it out. A plus, A plus plus, even somebody in my class I needed a Z plus on it for one of them. And from then on, I realized like, maybe I should get into communication. Maybe I should do that because I'm a good public speaker and I'm pretty good at conversation as well. So that's why I decided to make this podcast. It wasn't just to cultivate a van, fan base, to get a big following on Instagram or anything like that. It's really to improve on my communication skills. And I'm starting Toastmasters too, public speaking club. I'm gonna knock that out too. And it's all just, working on getting better and engaging the crowd and being able to talk to people. So, I mean, for today, the first thing that I really wanted to talk about was 6ix9ine, and we're going to get into that, but we're also going to get into Jamel Hill and whether top, top recruits should go to HBCUs. I'm going to give you guys my top five players in the NBA, and I'm going to talk a little, about, a little bit about Antonio Brown and just get my little two cents on that. So we'll be right back. All right, we're back. And before I get into 6ix9ine, this is important for all the people that want to hate. My name is Jelani, J 
Jelani Smith. Look it up on the internet. The name meaning is almighty, powerful, great. So for all the hungry out, hungry people out there that be calling me salami, bologna, uh, what else do they be calling me? A bunch of BS. Well, gelato, gelatin, or jello. Stop it. Stop it. You only, you only making yourself look bad. But for the first topic, I really wanted to talk about 6ix9ine and him testifying in court over the last three days. So everybody knows or has been known for a while now that 6ix9ine is the glorified snitch. Now at this very moment, he will forever probably be remembered for that. And it's can't blame anybody for saying that. I say the exact same thing. He's a snitch. He put himself in this situation. And I say this all the time, and I've been saying it a lot with the 6ix9ine situation. Don't jump in the water if you can't swim. Don't be something that you are not. It's a basic life motto that everybody lives by. Do not be something that you are not. Don't try to make yourself fit in. Be who you are. It's been said for, I don't know how long. It was probably said before my grandma was born. Be yourself. But he put himself in this situation. So when I started reading into it, and you start seeing the headlines, the first thing that you see is that he outed Cardi B, Jim Jones, and Trippy Red. Now, he said he was beefing with Trippy Red. He said that Trippy Red is part of what I think is called Brim Nine uh, Bloods, but he said that Cardi B and Jim Jones are nine trade bloods. Now, the significance in that really is that the nine trade bloods are known for armed robbery, murders, killings. They're a big time gang in New York, like big in New York. So any information he can give out on nine trade, is good for the government, for the state, for the police. In this court um, situation that he is in right now, since he's cooperating with the police, the government, or the state, the reason why it's so significant is because any little lie that he tells, any little detail that he lies about, he's going to prison. So everybody figures now at this point, even though this guy has been a liar, he's been trolling, he's been lying out of his teeth all this time since, since 2017, since he's cooperating with the police, with the state, with the government, whoever you want to say, that he is telling the truth because he's not trying to go back to prison. So his career started back in 2014. And at the time, I believe he was working at the Stay Fresh Grill in, in Delhi, in New York, and just working in there, being a regular guy, didn't, didn't have any passion for music. And a guy named Peter Rogers used to go into that deli very, very frequently with Batalabia, Peanuts, etc. And he told Daniel Hernandez, a.k.a. Takashi 69 that he should be a rapper. He asked him, hey, are you a rapper? Do you rap? Do you make music? Takashi said no. Or Daniel, I should say. He said no. Peter Rogers said, you look cool, man. Like, you got the image for it. You should be a rapper. So from then on, Takashi was like, I'm going to start making music then. Like, this guy's talking about, if I can make some money off this, it's better than working at the deli, I'm guessing, right? So from that point on. And that little bit that I had read in the article from the New York Times struck me already. Because one thing that you see a lot of times in rappers nowadays, and you can see this in athletes as well, you see a lot of athletes and rappers that don't build a real passion for what they're doing. They're doing it to escape or to find a better life, which is cool. But I feel like when you're talking to old heads, when you're talking to guys who lived off of Nas and a Tupac and a Biggie and, and guys who spoke a little bit more substance in the rap compared to what you might hear now, that might be part of the issue. That might be part of the gate that's not being opened is that a lot of rappers now, they don't, they don't look, find their passion in the music from the beginning. They just start going because they want a better life. They don't even care about the fact that 
they could possibly mess up the game. They just want to make money and they want to get their family secured, themselves secured, their grandkids secured. That's all they care about. And that's why you hear a lot of the music now and people are all like, oh my gosh, this is so trash. Like they don't care about that. They know what's important to the youth because this is a young man's game rap. This is a young man's game. They know what's important and they know what needs to be put out there for them to get views. Now, when his rap career started, he was just kind of toiling in the underground, things like that. He wasn't really making a whole lot of money. He made like $2,000 on a tour in Europe, but nobody really knew Takashi 6 ix name. Nobody knew who he was until November of 2017 when Gummo came out. And this baffled me, this Dex information I'm gonna give to you guys. So he's, he wanted to get a video for Gummo. And at the time, his manager, I believe his name was Chris, I cannot pronounce his last name, you guys could look it up. It's on New York Times, this whole entire story. He was his press manager. So basically all 20% of Takashi's earnings through music, whatever, goes to Chris. Chris was best friends with this guy named, I can't pronounce his name, I apologize. I think it's, it's Seiko or Seiko Billy. We'll just call him Billy because I'm not about to be butchering names. This is my first episode. That was his best friend. Billy was associated or is associated with Nantre, Nantre Blood Gang. So Takashi figures I'm going to be around this guy a lot because he's my press manager's best friend. So we ask him for the Gummo video, hey, can you bring some Nantres with you so my video could look a little bit more legit, look a little bit more, uh, look a little better, I guess you could put it, put that in air quotes, better. Of course, Billy agreed to it and when they went to the video, of course, Takashi had bought 3,000 bandanas, red bandanas for all the people that were coming in this video. If you've seen the Gummo video, if you haven't seen it, go see it. You see how many people are out there. Like it's, it's when you talk about mobbed out and you talking about like, I'm deep, we're deep out here. It, it's hundreds of people out there on 370 Madison Street is where they filmed this at. So, that is actually where, and I figured, I mean, before before you knew about any of this that went on, you figured that 6 9 and Shoddy knew each other before this. Shoddy, who was a leader of 9Trey, met 6 9 that day. That day he met him. And he didn't even put him in the gang. He didn't even put him in 9Trey. He wasn't even officially a 9Trey member after Gummo. After they got through filming Gummo, Shoddy, told, Shoddy and Chris were talking and they said they didn't want to release the video to a later date. 6ix9ine went out on his own and released the video. It blew up. And I mean, obviously for the uniqueness of the video, dude with a rainbow hair and 6ix9ine's all over his face and on his arms, that's pretty unique. It's going to draw a lot of attention and 6ix9ine knew that. So when the video blew up, Shadi talked to 6ix9ine and said, like, dude, like, I didn't want him to do that, but it seems like he knows what he's doing. Like, let's keep in touch. So... 6ix9ine found his formula at that point. He said this in court. He found, he found his formula through that Gummo video. Being around gang members, having that street credibility in the, in, the, uh, in the video, along with the rainbow hair, his unique rap style of yelling and almost screaming into the mic. And I found that so uncomfortable when I first heard it. It, it was, I, I told my friends, turn that off. That is ridiculous. But he found his formula. Being different, having street credibility, having that gang image was going to get him somewhere. So it wasn't until after Kuda, which was his next song that came out. So if, if Gummo was released in October, released in October on YouTube, Kuda was, was released, I want to say December. So two months after Gummo is when Kuda came out. And then after that, he officially became a non-trade member. 
which was very interesting to me, obviously, and to a lot of people. They're like, oh my goodness, like we didn't even know that at all. So basically, they developed a partnership, Shadi, Nine Trey, and Six Nine. Six Nine's job was to keep making hits for keep making hits for Nine Trey and for himself and for the people out there in exchange for fame, street credibility, and protection. Because Six Nine, he was smart enough, I guess you can call it, really not smart enough to know that the best way to get publicity is to cause attention to yourself, whether it be through trolling, other guys talking shit on the internet, having a unique rap style, having that gang image around you. Because in his videos, like you see a lot of videos with rappers and they got their gang with them. They got their guys with them, their entourage. 6ix9ine, if you check his videos, you see everybody. It seems like everybody from New York is outside during his videos. And it looks super entertaining. It looks super live. And it looks like something you'd want to be a part of almost like in a, in a, in a weird kind of way, in a weird kind of space. 6ix9ine's job was to bring in revenue. Shadi wanted, apparently Shadi had wanted a lot of artillery and guns, I guess for protection of actually 6ix9ine. Because, I mean, he was talking so much and there were a lot of people out there that wanted to test his gangsta, as he was saying at the time. He wanted, there were a lot of people who wanted to actually come after 6ix9ine and in some of his shows, he got that. Like, it was dangerous for him to be out there. So a lot of venues were scared of him at that time. So the guns, the artillery, that was all for protection of 6ix9ine, at least 6ix9ine claims while he was in court. This is all, all this information I'm giving to you, 6ix9ine gave to the court. So... One thing that I want to get out of this, one thing that I, the bigger picture, all this to me, and this is where I kind of break down this whole thing. If you've seen Bre- uh, 6 ix Breakfast Club interview, you would have known that he, at that point, his second one, not his first one, his second one, it's got about 12 million views on YouTube, you can check it out right now. He talked about getting away from the nine trays and getting away from that Treyway moniker, that brand, after he realized that they were taking money for him. So they were his booking agents, they were his promoters for all of his shows. He realized that they were taking about $3 million of his money away from him. $3 million. So if he's lined up for 15 dates, he's getting, well, at least at the time when his booking agents were nine, Trey and Shadi, he's getting about $100,000 for these 15 dates. He got with a different promoter and a different booking agency. They added up the money he would be getting over his 15 dates. And they said, well, we're not going to shortchange you. It's $3 million. Damn near four. And he's like losing his mind so he realizes that nine trey is taking his money away they're taking money that he earned away and using it for whatever they're using it for whether it be guns any who knows what they're really using it for but at that point after that and along with the kidnapping where his own his former crew members i shouldn't say his own his former crew members basically took him assaulted him and kidnapped him put him in their car and he ended up in the hospital at that point he didn't want to be a part of nine trey anymore he, I think a few days after the Breakfast Club interview, he gets charged with racketeering and drug abuse, or not drug abuse, drug trafficking. Racketeering, for people that do not know, is basically he was putting hits out on guys. He was not doing the killing. He was not doing the shootings, or not even killings, I should say, the shootings. He was just putting hits out. And there's actually a video on TMZ, if you guys want to check it out, of him actually doing this i don't know how he didn't know that a camera was in front of him like i don't know how i don't know how you could be that dumb but he didn't know that big picture though from what i get from this from my perspective out of this whole thing because this six nine situation has been talked about enough at this point it's been talked about 
on ends. Everybody knows he's a snitch. Everybody's got memes for him. Everybody's being funny on YouTube and on Twitter and all this different stuff. Big picture that I get out of it. 6ix9ine is not the first rapper to snitch. He's snitching right now and he will not be the last rapper to snitch. In exchange for fame, protection, and street credibility, he brought in revenue, but he was being cheated out of his money. But the big thing that I have a problem with is a rapper, and it's not just 6ix9ine, and it's not going to be just 6ix9ine in the future, it hasn't been just 6ix9ine in the past. Rappers who profit off an environment and lifestyle that gets people killed every day. And not just any people, but innocent people killed every single day. So think about that. You're not even from this area. You're not from this. You're not about this. This is not who you are. This is not you being your most authentic self. And yet you're profiting. You're promoting this stuff to people who actually live in this lifestyle, who are getting killed every single day, whether it be through gang lifestyle or people that just live in that area and are being killed, innocent people being killed. That's not cool. That's something that has to stop. And it's rappers on one end. They have to stop doing that. But us as fans, we have to do better as well. And what I'll say about that is this. As fans, we set the precedent. We set the precedent for what we want our rappers to be. So a lot of times we know what gets the biggest views. A dude that talks about drugs, that talks about partying, that talks about killing, that talks about girls. And maybe some other, you know, things like that. Material, material possession, success, flaunting it. You know what I'm saying? If we would stop making that the top if that would stop being something that we value, something that we want views, something that's entertaining to us, then rappers would stop acting like this. Because a lot of rappers understand, like I said, going back to my point earlier about passion, a lot of these rappers that are looking for a way out, that are looking to just make money, secure a bag for their family and themselves, they understand what they're looking for, what, what we're all looking for. We're looking for somebody who's talking about drugs, party, girls, killings, guns, success, material, and a catchy hook. That's all we're looking for. If us as fans gets away from all this stuff, maybe we can change that. But rappers have to do that on their own as well. But us as fans, we have to do our part because I don't think rappers would be like this. They wouldn't be giving out such music that old heads don't really like if we would just sit down and say, look, we value a guy who or a woman who gives lyrics, who's entertaining, but to a point not entertain like charismatic, not entertaining like bad entertainment like the subjects I was talking about earlier but somebody who values their lyricism values their content and the subjects that they're talking about and not even just that it could just be wherever you are from be honest about it be authentic about it so if you really are about it rap about it because that's you but if you are somebody who isn't about it and now you're promoting it and you're profiting off people who actually live it and don't like where they live then you got a problem here and really for the last part, I hope that 6ix9ine realizes that all this, whatever he wanted, his image, it's now forever going to be tarnished. So what he was going for, he ended up not getting. Now, one thing he did get, forever he will be viral, forever people will remember him. And that's something that I think he was going for, but for all the wrong reasons. And I think the message that we can take out of this is to be authentic and to be honest with ourselves. For the next subject, I'm going to be talking about my top five NBA players coming into the 2019-2020 season. So we'll be right back. We back at it again. 
So let's jump right into it. Sports Illustrated every single year. Well, since I've been following about 2016, it might be before that as well. They come out every single year, NBA, with a top 100 list of players in the NBA. Usually what they do is they base it off the performance from that season. So currently right now, who is the best player in the NBA? This year, they did it a little bit different, and it's essentially based on potential, which I think is super, super jaded. It's a list that tries to project who will be the best of the best players during the 2019-2020 season. I think it's really stupid. I don't even know how you could possibly like know who's going to be the best player or the best players of the 2019-2020 season without actually seeing it out there because you see a lot of times breakout players happen. Did anybody really, really know that Victor Oladipo was going to do exactly what he was going to do when he broke out with the Pacers his first year? No, nobody knew that type of thing. Nobody knew he was going to get most improved. Nobody knew he was going to get first team all defense that year and lead the league in steals. Maybe some of you might have thought that and you're probably Victor Oladipo fans, a little bit more optimistic on the guy, but that type of stuff people don't usually know. It comes out of nowhere. And they used, for the Sports Illustrated list, they used analytics, previous play, team fit, all those things, but... It's, it's too hard to try to project who's going to be the best player of 2019-2020. And I think they should go back to what they usually do, which is projecting who was the best 2019, the best player coming into 2019-2020. So right now, who do you think is the best player in the NBA? So I'm going to give you guys a luxury of my top five NBA players right now coming into the 2019-2020 season. For a little bit of background, their list was, I believe... Number one was Giannis. They think is going to be the best player in 2019-2020, like while playing during the season. Number two, they had Kawhi. Number three was, I want to say LeBron. Number four was Stephen Curry. Number five was James Harden. That was their list of players that they think will be top five in the NBA 2019-2020. I think it's not bad. It's pretty, that's not bad, but you don't know who's going to be where and who's going to be number one. And it's probably not good to try to project that stuff. It's better to just say who is what you think they are now. So I'm gonna give you guys my top five players in the NBA. You can give me some flack. You could possibly not give me some flack and say that I'm a genius. Either way, I really don't care. These are my top five players. So my first player, number five, because I wanna give you guys a little bit of suspense. I wanna make you think about who is he gonna put as number one? It's better for my show. James Harden is my number five player. Now, anybody that knows me, my friends, people that I talk to know that I love James Harden and he's coming off the best individual scoring season we have seen since Michael Jordan in 88, when he averaged 37 points a game. James Harden averaged 36.1 points a game. You're talking about 60-point games, 50-point games, the 30-point streak. One of the greatest individual seasons we have ever seen from an NBA player. Just overall, I don't even care about offense. We're talking about both. Like, just overall, put it all together. One of the best individual seasons we have ever seen in the likes of Michael Jordan in 88. In the likes of Jordan, shoot, 90-91, Russell Westbrook in his first triple-double season, Stephen Curry, LeBron in 2012-2013, LeBron in 2008. To me, in my opinion, and I don't think this is far-fetched, so anybody that disagrees with me, we're going to have to talk about that. I believe that James Harden is one of the greatest offensive players the game has ever seen, like ever seen. And to get on top of that, he also was second in the league in total steals, just behind Paul George and deflections per game, just behind Paul George. Uh, James Harden is one of the best ball handlers the game has ever seen. James Harden is one of the best shooters the game has ever seen from long range. His step back is going to be up there, I believe, with AI's crossover, with Dirk Nowitzki's fadeaway, with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's skyhook. 
that's how potent this step back is. And one-on-one, -on -one, I don't think the guy can be guarded. I think people hate on his playing style, but they also don't like him for his playoff struggles, which is probably why I have him at five. Even I gotta admit, James Harden does struggle in the playoffs. I think it's been overblown the last two years, to be honest with you. He's played pretty well in the playoffs the last two years. Now, 2016, 2017, everybody could talk about when he completely, it seemed like he gave up and was asleep against the Spurs in game six in the Western Conference semifinals. Or you could talk about when the Clippers or no, not when the Clippers had them down 3-1 and they sat James Harden in the fourth quarter and they watched J uh, Josh Smith knock down threes to save them and then far and beyond that and going on to win that series when being down 3-1. I think the last two years he has played well. And even, even game six against the Warriors this past year, he played well. I think he had 35 points. People are going to get on him for passing up shots. He made the right decision, but I also do got to agree with these people that James Harden does not need to be sharing the rock in those situations. If we're going to lose, we're going to lose because of you, and we are okay with that. I think as far as his playing style, I think it's a little hypocritical of people. He averages about almost 12 free throws a game. But if you look at any great score, like don't name Stephen Curry, but besides him because he's, he's inhuman. When you're talking about great scores, they get to the free throw line a lot. And he's just exploiting the NBA within the rules, though. Like, within the rules. He's not doing anything that's illegal or anything besides that everybody's going to oh, my gosh, that three, the three-step uh, step back. Oh, my God, he traveled. That was one time. And a lot of great players get away with traveling. They get away with carrying, doing things like that because they're great players and they score the ball at such an efficient rate. That's what happens. But he's simply exploiting the rules. So if you guys want to stop him, there's really nothing you can do at that point. But James Harden, I have him down at five, mostly because of the defense compared to the other guys on my list, but also because he has struggled in the playoffs. And I, I'm going to admit that. Now, my number four player, I got Giannis Antetokounmpo. And one thing I do want to say before I continue with the list, all five of the players that I'm going to name, you can make a case for number one. So anybody that comes with a different top five list, I understand where you're coming from, possibly, unless you just say some BS, like, I don't know, you say you say that Spencer Dinwiddie is the best player in the NBA, then I, I got to fight you on that one. But the top five players I'm naming, they got all got a case for number one. So that's the beauty of this entire list. But I got Giannis at number four for me. Giannis is a video game. And we say that about LeBron James. We say that about Kevin Durant. We say that about Stephen Curry. This guy is 6'11", 242 pounds of straight muscle, speed and agility like a point guard, jumps like a wing. It's not very often, not very often at all, that you get a player on the court who 99% of the time is taller, stronger, faster, jumps higher, and it's longer than all the other players that are playing on the court. That is Giannis Antetokounmpo. He's the closest player I've seen to what Will Chamberlain was able, what we think Will Chamberlain was physically, all the, the squeezing and killing the mountain lions, him running like a 4-2-40 and jumping 48 inches in the air, even though I, I, I don't know. He must have been touching the shot clock if that's the case. There's no way that he wasn't, he wasn't like saving people's lives, being Superman or something like that. He's the most dominant player we've seen at the rim in the paint since Shaq. There's stats to prove it, and you could just see it with your eyes. Now, they both do it in different ways. Shaq was boom, boom, dribble, take two dribbles, drop step, dunk it on you, and then taunt a little bit later. Giannis is more in transition. I'll give you a little in and out, possibly a little in and out crossover, spin move, or a euro step into a dunk. So Giannis is more dynamic with the way that he scores his baskets, but they're both super, super dominant at the rim. The most do two most dominant players we've seen at the rim in the last, maybe ever, maybe ever, to be honest with you. He's one of the best slashers the game has ever seen. And I think he's up there with the likes of D-Wade, LeBron, Jordan. Shout out to all the D-Rose fans. 
D Rose was a killer when he was 23 years old. He's one of the best slashers I've ever seen. And people are gonna get on me when I say Giannis is the best slasher I've ever, one of the best slashers I've ever seen. They're like, oh my God, he's only 24 years old. Like, have you seen him play though? Have you seen the things he could do, the myriad of moves that he has, the way he gets in the lane, how easily he gets into the lane and scores all of his points like that? He's averaging 27 points without a jump shot, guys. Let's just remember that. 27 points without a jump shot on like 54% shooting or 55, 56, whatever it is. That's ridiculous. But the reason I have him down on this list is uh, I feel like in the conference finals, there were a lot of weaknesses that, sh that were shown. Toronto did an incredible job walling up on him in the half court and in transition. They did a great job of double teaming him in the post, and he's not good handling double teams in the post. He's a good, very good passer, but he's inaccurate at times, or he dribbles a little too much before passing it, and then the rotation's already there, so his shooters didn't get an open shot like they should have. I think he needs to develop a jump shot, yes, and everybody says that. If he just develops a jump shot, oh my God, he's going to be amazing, yes. But what about when his legs leave him? What about when he's not super athletic and can just jump over people anymore? He's going to need a post game. He's going to need a little turnaround. He's going to need a little fadeaway. He's going to have to get a, a back down into a post hook or a drop step into a hook. He's going to up and under. He's going to need to learn all that stuff if he wants to continue playing in the league for a long time because he's a good passer. He can work out of the post as well. Defensively, he's elite and he's one of the better rim protectors in the NBA. One of the better perimeter defenders in the NBA. One of the best, literally elite, both as a rim protector and on the perimeter. But I have him at number four because of what I saw in Toronto and the fact that he, I can't put, I, it's hard for me to put him anywhere in the top three when he doesn't have a jump shot or a post game. So for the next player I got on my list, I have LeBron at three. And this one might give me some flack. Y'all LeBron fans is ridiculous. You all need to know this. For anybody who's listening to the podcast, y'all ridiculous. To me, it's funny how going to LA has changed people, people's perception of LeBron a little. His play style is being criticized by analysts now. They're like, oh my God, it's the LeBron system. It's him just having the ball all the time and shooters around. And he doesn't make players better anymore. We realized it because Kevin Love struggled, even though Kevin Love was a 26 per point per game scorer before he got to Cleveland. So it's obvious to me, it's kind of overblown a little bit, the LeBron system, because at the end of the day, the guy wins games. It's pretty much a guaranteed finals appearance or deep in the playoffs with LeBron, no matter what system he's running you're going to get somewhere with LeBron James on your team. But when you run into, he runs into a lot, and this has been his weakness, this has been his problem ever since he's gotten into the league. Teams that emphasize ball movement and teams that emphasize stifling defense. But even with his injury and the Lakers struggles, he still averaged 27 points, eight rebounds, eight assists per game. And that's pretty identical to the stats he put up in his last year in Cleveland. You know what the difference is though? He was playing in the Eastern, he was playing in the Eastern Conference at that time. He wasn't injured. And overall, I mean, like I said, with the Eastern Conference and the competition that was in there. And the injuries also to the other players on his team as well. Brandon Ingram went down, Lonzo Ball went down. They had a lot of problems with injuries. And that happens. You know, usually with LeBron, it's always, he's going to play deep. He's going to play, he played 82 games his last season in Cleveland, was resting before that, but he's a very, very durable player. Doesn't get hurt a lot or doesn't suffer significant injuries. This year that he did with the pulling his groin or tearing his groin rather. And that's changed people's perception, but Kevin Durant's been dealing with that for years. Steph Curry's been dealing with that for years. So I still think LeBron is a top three player, but I've been saying for a long time now that LeBron is not the best player in the world. For a disclaimer, he's not going to be on my list, but if he was on my list, Kevin Durant would be my number one player. So for my number two player, and this is the one that's going to give me some flack for sure, especially after considering what happened in the finals this past year against the Raptors, I would say that Stephen Curry 
is the second best player in the NBA. Now, he's 6'3". People are going to point to his defense, the lack of clutch moments in big finals games, whatever. I think it's overblown that he's not clutch. I think Stephen Curry is clutch, and you only have to go through film to see where he's clutch at. Those are big shots you're taking. A lot of guys would miss those shots, and I think it's unfair to be criticizing the guy for that. But to go on about Curry, he's the ultimate offensive weapon in terms of gravity and efficiency. Literally, if you watch the Raptors series, you could watch any game you want to, game one through game six. If you see how many shots he's creating for his teammates, whether he's screening or whether he's running around screens, there are constant double, double teams coming. There are two or three people chasing him because they, they know as soon as he gets the ball, if he gets the ball, he can shoot it from 30 feet out and it's going in a lot more than it's probably not going to go in, to be honest with you. He's that good of a shooter. He's the best shooter the game has ever seen, along with the likes of Klay Thompson as well, who's underrated in that category. He makes the game easier for his teammates in a way that nobody else, I don't think, makes the game easier for their teammates. He's an excellent first option, second option, and third option because he doesn't need necessarily the ball to score. He's one of the best, maybe the best in the NBA at running off of screens and getting a shot off very quick because of that super quick release he has. I think his defense is overblown a little bit. His defensive stats, like it's it's a little bit, it's a little bit weary to me. So think about this. Imagine if you're James Harden. You're coming down the court, you're playing the Warriors. You see Stephen Curry, Klay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, and let's say uh, Kevon Looney. And you're trying to get a bucket. You're James Harden. You're the best one-on-one player in the league. You're one of the best scorers in the league, if not the best scorer in the league. You could score on anybody. But if you needed a bucket for sure, who are you going to try to get that bucket on? Just little old 6'3 Stephen Curry with the short arms. I think that the Warriors, they say that they hit him a little bit. But in the playoffs, he's going to get picked on a lot. You're talking about guys like Kyrie Irving, Harden, LeBron, he's had to pick up off switches. In the playoffs, teams try to get their best players the ball in advantageous situations. So we don't want James Harden being guarded by Andre Godala all game and him trying to go one-on-one. -on -one. Because at the end of the day, that's not going to work a lot of times, as good as James Harden is. So the Warriors being such a good defensive team, possibly the best, probably the best defensive team since 2014-2015 when they won their first championship... You're looking at all-world defenders across the perimeter. Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, Ke uh, Clay Thompson. Underrated is Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson. Draymond Green has a defensive player to his name, defensive player of the year to his name. So ultimately, Stephen Curry, even though he's not a bad defender at all, against other point guards, he does not do bad. And the point guards today are ridiculous. You know how many good point guards in the NBA? He's going to get exposed a little bit when it comes to playoff time or when it comes against good point guards for his little bit of lack of foot speed, the fact that he is not seven feet with long arms, and because he's not all that strong. But I feel like the Warriors in general have made him look more like a worse defender than what he is. And I think people don't know how to separate teams from individual players. So let's talk about the Lakers for a quick second or even the Clippers. When I tell you that Anthony Davis and LeBron James are coming together, you're like, oh my gosh, oh my goodness, that's going to be amazing. Or when I say Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are going to come together and play on the Clippers, you're like, oh my gosh, like those are two 25 plus point per game scorers. Yes, they are. They're all superstars in the NBA. No doubt about it. But there's something to be said for a team that's been playing together for seven years without being separated at all. You have seen them sacrifice for each other shots for seven plus years now. Yeah, seven, about seven years now. I think Klay Thompson and Steph Curry's value is a little bit underrated because you've never really seen them play separately together. I mean, separately. You've never seen them on different teams. What would Klay Thompson be if he wasn't on the Warriors? 
Who knows? Maybe he'd light up the league for 30 points. Stephen Curry, we've seen what he did on the Warriors, a 73-9 team, averaging about, what was it, 30 points per game, and he wasn't even playing the full 34, he sat out a lot of them games. You saw what he did in 2015-2016, one of the greatest individual seasons the game has ever seen. I think that teams that sacrifice for each other a lot, they get undermined individually, and that just comes with it because you're sacrificing for each other consistently. You're constantly having to play with each other and work with each other's egos in order to win championships. And I feel like the Warriors, for anybody that's saying they're not going to make the playoffs, they're not going to go deep in the playoffs, wait till Klay Thompson, if he does come back, which I'm pretty sure from what I'm hearing, he is coming back. When they come back, nobody wants to play them in the first round because you really might get wiped out. Whoever that third, fourth seed is, whoever that might be, you don't want to play the Warriors because individually, these guys are a lot better than what they get portrayed as. And same with Draymond Green, I think, as well. And really... Really, my last thing is, I mean, he could just fit. That's the biggest thing with me when it comes to um, basketball players right now. LeBron, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, they are amazing players, but it's hard to fit them into any system because of the way they play the ball dominance. With a Kevin Durant, with a Kawhi Leonard, with a Stephen Curry, these guys are going to fit into any system, and it's not going to take long for them at all. So that's why I have Curry at number two for gravity, for presence, his shooting ability. You're talking about things that some people don't see on the court, but they make a big difference. And nobody else, I think, in the league has the gravity or presence on the court. Nobody scares teams more than Stephen Curry. So you can make a case for him at number one. But my number one player I have on this list is Kawhi Leonard. People are going to say I'm being narrative driven. People are going to say that I'm just going along with what everybody else is saying or that I'm on the I'm a Kawhi bandwagon. I might be a little bit. But let me explain a little bit. Kawhi had one of the greatest playoff runs individually that the league has has seen in the last 10 years. Now, we can all spin our heads here talking about Jordan in 91, Olajuwon in 94, Duncan in 03, Shaq in 2000, Bird in 84, Wade in 06. But over the last 10 years, give respect to Kobe in 09, give respect to Kobe in 2010, give a lot more respect to Dirk Nowitzki in 2011 for what he did helping lead the Mavericks. To, uh, to a championship over the Miami Heat. 27.7 points per game doesn't get talked about enough. Then we get into LeBron. 2012, 2013, what he did in 2015 when they lost to the Warriors 4-2. Uh, to two. 2017, the year after they won the championship. 2018, in his last year in Cleveland, which was an amazing run. I think the only playoff run that eclipses what Kawhi Leonard just pulled off in Toronto was LeBron in 2016 when they won the championship over the Golden State Warriors after being down 3-1. The whole story behind that, the narrative behind that is too strong for me to just put that over. I'm sorry, I can't put that over. I can't put Kawhi's over LeBron's. That's just how it is. But Kawhi to me is the best, still, still, the best perimeter defender in the NBA. And I think a lot of people took shots at him for his defense in the final series and in the series before that in Philadelphia. But when you're handling the ball as much as he is, when you're on a bad leg, and you're carrying this team offensively, it's going to be really hard to play Kawhi Leonard level defense. Basically, their offense, basically their offense became high pick and roll and isolation. That's literally all they were doing. And you could check out the series with Philadelphia and Golden State. That's all that they did. Whenever this team, whenever Toronto needed a desperate basket, or whenever they were in desperation of in need of a basket, Kawhi Leonard gave it to them. And he was efficient throughout most of that time. Now, in some games, and he wasn't as efficient against the Warriors, but still was efficient all throughout the playoffs. He killed the Magic on crazy efficiency. In Philadelphia, that's always going to be remembered. The only Game 7 buzzer beater that we've ever seen in league history. 
And in Golden State, he did exactly what a great player is supposed to do. Take over when your team needs to take over, give him big buckets, get big steals, big stops on defense. He also, I mean, I'm not gonna give him too much credit for this because I think that was a team thing, but he was able to neutralize Giannis after they put him on, after they put Kawhi on Giannis, which is a big deal. Now, I'm not saying, oh my gosh, Kawhi is the reason why Giannis got shut down. That's not that at all. If you check out the series, you see how good they were doubling Giannis, forcing him into bad turnovers, forcing him into bad passes, forcing him into bad shots and getting him into foul trouble. But Kawhi does get a little bit of credit for that as well. He's pretty much, I mean, you asking me, he's one of the best mid-range players in the NBA along with Kevin Durant, CJ McCollum, guys like that. He's one of the best in the game mid-range wise. He's also, like I said, the best defender. He scores at will, whether at the rim for the three-point line or for mid-range. He's an underrated passer as well and an underrated rebounder. And I think when you combine all those things along with the playoff run that he just had, 76ers were no joke. They were no joke at all. There's a reason why they went seven games with Toronto. You're talking about Tobias Harris, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, JJ Redick on the same team? That's ridiculous. Give a lot of credit to Toronto. They give a lot of credit to Kawhi Leonard as well for what he was able to pull off. It may be a little bit of some recency bias on my part, but if you ask me right now, Kawhi Leonard is the number one player in the NBA. And after this, we'll be right back with Jamel Hill and my take on what HBC or whether top recruits should go to HBCUs. So last topic for today on Sideline Saturdays with you guys has to do with Jamel Hill and her suggestion that top athletes should go to HBCUs. You can read the article in The Atlantic. Jamel Hill is a former ESPN analyst and now she writes for The Atlantic. And for her first article, I believe, yeah, that must have been her first article. You can go check it out on the internet. Just look it up. Jamel Hill, HBCUs. She believes that top recruits should go to HBCUs in order to bring revenue into these HBCUs. And she brings a lot of stats. She brings a lot of insights and a lot of different examples of how this could work out. And I'll be honest with you guys, when I first read the article, I felt like she was right on point. I'm like, yes, they need to bring in money. They do need to bring in money. We need more top athletes to bring in money. She stated that about, I want to say like, if you can, you can combine 10 colleges, 10 HBCU colleges, and they didn't bring in more revenue for their athletics than Alabama did in 2016, 2017 crazy ridiculous numbers right there and i went to an hbcu if you guys don't know i went to lincoln university in pennsylvania like lincoln lincoln university pennsylvania was where it was located literally it's the first ever hbcu made and i think uh third good marshall graduated from there i went and i'm not gonna lie to you guys i didn't enjoy my experience there and a lot of it had to do with just the environment what it looked like i mean it just didn't look like college i was talking to my friend who goes to u of i and he was telling me about how big the campus was and the stuff that they had and how many students and how fun it was and how like regulated it was compared to Lincoln. And I was like, man, I don't need to be here. This ain't the college for me, man. This is ridiculous. This place is nasty. I see all types of like rodents in here, all the different stuff like that. Not realizing that money wasn't being brought in. Our sports teams weren't good at all. Our football team was like, I'm not gonna lie, we got smoked by 80, like 70 or 80, like one of our first games of the year. I said, I checked the, uh, <laughs> I checked the schedule for the like let's check the uh the record from the past they had won one game then zero then one then two and i was like i ain't going to no football games this, this place is trash i'm not even gonna lie to you that's exactly what i said i didn't go to no football games i would just check the scores after the game was over every saturday 
And I remember one time, it was some team from Virginia, it was another HBCU, they smoked us by about 70 or 80, something like that. We just weren't good as a sports team. And none of them, except I think the women's basketball team was pretty good, but our baseball team wasn't good. Our basketball team was about mediocre, to be honest with you. Um, and so, Jamel Hill wants to bring wants the top athletes to come in, similar to what the Fab Five kind of did. Five black guys going to Michigan, bringing in all that revenue, not getting any of the money. She wants that sort of thing. She wants that sort of thing kind of for kind of for HBCUs. She says it would help cut economical uh, racial racial wealth gap, which is I, I can't say for sure, but I'm kind of positive that that would happen. HBCUs are so low on money and they give back to communities a lot of times. It would help in the wealth gap a little bit. She also talks about how the black professional class, so you're talking about doctors, lawyers, just a professional class, a lot of it comes from HBCUs. A lot of it is produced by HBCUs. So being able to put money back into these schools for better facilities, better just overall campus life is going to produce better in the black professional class. Now, I thought about this a lot. I thought about how the racial wealth gap in America is enormous. I thought about how the medium white household has nearly like 10 times the wealth of the black median household. I thought about how NCAA has contracts with these TV stations that are worth millions, probably billions of dollars. I thought about, you know, if top recruits, and one of the things that she talked about, and one of the trickle down effects that she talked about of having top athletes go to HBCUs is that they would take away the NCAA's leverage and it would allow players to get paid possibly one day. That's where my issue was, because I can't imagine that that would actually happen. I can't see a scenario. Maybe I'm being ignorant right now. Some of you listeners can tell me a little bit, but I don't know how that's exactly is going to happen. And I think the biggest issue still in sports, and until we solve that, as much as my mom kind of explained this to me in a way, it's better to get exploited by by the HBCUs than it is by PWIs. And not necessarily that you want to be exploited by your own people, but you're, at least you're bringing in revenue to your own people. You're helping out your own people. So I thought about it in that way too, and I was like, yeah, I get it. But the biggest issue in college sports, in sports in general, is it's literally a civil rights issue. And that is the fact that college athletes are getting exploited. They don't get paid for their labor. Now, there's been some radical ideas out there about what could happen. I think a guy by the name of Andy Schwartz came out with an idea and said that the NC, that HBCUs should separate away from NCAA, NCAAs, NCAA, and just NCAA as a whole, make their own league pay for play league. And it's going, I don't, I can't see a scenario where that happens because to be honest with you, HBCUs don't even have the startup capital to be able to give guys contracts like that anyway. But overall, when we talk about this issue, a lot of times, as much as I want to say, yes, top athletes should go to HBCUs to help bring in revenue. There is one side of me that says that, but there's a bigger side of me that says that athletes are getting exploited and it does not matter what athlete it is. It could be white or black. It could be Mexican, Puerto Rican, it could be anybody. They're getting exploited and that's a civil rights issue and that is wrong. And until we get that solved, I don't think that players are going to really gravitate towards HBCUs because at the end of the day, and you can't blame players for this, they're going to do what's best for them. So if Duke is offering something better than Howard, a better scholarship that's got a little bit more benefits than Howard does, then they're going to go to Duke. And along with that, Duke is getting nationally televised games at the end of the day. Along with that comes possibly a shoe deal, just more opportunities in the NBA, which is the end goal for a lot of these college athletes or NFL or MLB for a lot of these athletes. So at the end of the day, you cannot blame them. They're not thinking big picture oriented because all they want to think about is securing their family 
securing themselves and doing what's best for them ultimately and getting themselves the most exposure. That is the biggest issue that I think is out there. So while I think Jamel Hill had a a good idea and it's something that athletes should look into more, until we can get players to get paid for their labor and not being exploited anymore, I think that we need to slow down a little bit on some of these things because ultimately, if you were in this, if you were in Zion Williamson's situation and you're you're choosing between a Duke or Howard, at the end of the day, you're going to pick Duke. And that's just the way it is because there's more money put into it. The startup capital is not the same in Howard. The opportunities are better. Overall, it's just better. So I don't necessarily disagree with Jamel Hill, but there's a bigger issue at hand and that needs to be solved before anything else. Thank you guys so much for listening to Sideline Saturdays. Like I said, man, the, the excitement has been boiling over all week, all, last two weeks over for me for this, pretty much. I've been waiting so long to be doing this. I was nervous, I, but I was confident at the same time. It was all weird. I was all messed up in the head for a while. It just, getting it out there has been great now. And I hope you guys enjoy it and listen to it. Thank you so much. And I'll see you guys next Saturday.